You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for... <laughs> I'm not as rambunctious as Joe is, so <laughs> if I tried to do what he does to welcome you all, I would sound silly. <laughs> um, it's awesome that you guys made it here. Everyone have a good Thanksgiving? Good. How, who here loves the snow? Raise your... Me too. In my mind, Christmas and holidays has finally arrived because the snow is here. I love it, love it, love it. Um, well, as you guys know, Joe's not here this morning, but I have the privilege of being able to talk to you guys today. Um, before we get started into what I want to talk about, I just want to make one announcement, and that is um, just to remind you guys that we are taking applications for 2009 missions. And Jacob and I, my husband and I, are kind of heading this up. Um, for this year kind of in a volunteer capacity, but we have some awesome trips that are happening. Uh, One is to Rwanda. It's a three-week trip. Um, Justin Mandel is one of the leaders for that, and also Brittany Sloan, if you guys know her. Um, Cadets, it works with the cadet schedule, so if you're a cadet, it works for you. Um, But going to Rwanda for three weeks, we have a, a Nepal trip that's going to be for a month, and then we have a group that's going to Afghanistan for six weeks. So all of those are phenomenal opportunities. Um, and so if you have a heart for missions, if you've been before and you're like, oh, I love going overseas, I'd be interested in going longer or exploring if God maybe would have more for me there, then this is totally an opportunity for you because it's designed to give you a little bit. It's like another baby step in the direction of what would it be like to spend a longer period of time overseas? So if you're interested, there's drop cards and applications at the back um, table, and I encourage you to pick one up. They're due December 12th, so the deadline is coming. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for um, snow and the beauty of it. We thank you for safe travel and for great holidays. And Lord, we pray right now that you would come and that you would meet us here. We um, open our hearts up, Lord, to receive what you would want to speak to us today. We pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts and in our minds to mold us um, into becoming more like you. We love you. We declare that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, you guys are just finishing up a... um, a month on talking about how to read the Bible and kind of what that looks like to read the Bible accurately and why that's important. And um, so first of all, I just want to ask you guys, since we were a smaller group today, I thought this would be kind of fun. Um, Tell me, first of all, why is it important that we read the Bible accurately? Why does it matter that we we understand, that we take time to study and to, to know that we're interpreting and reading Scripture correctly? Why does it matter? Yeah. Mhm. So we're 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 not seeing things wrong, so we know what God's actually telling us as opposed to seeing something skewed. Yes, way in the back. That's correct. So it can be dangerous to us if we think that the Bible's saying one thing and it actually isn't saying that. Anything else? Why? Why does it matter? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So she said that it's important that the Bible is part of how we get to know who God is. We get to know his character, what he's like, how he interacts with us. It's how we get to know what the world is like, what we can expect from the world. And so it's important that we understand that accurately so we have an accurate understanding of who God is and how we relate to him. It's good. Well, it's interesting as I was kind of working on this this week, uh, because I got word this week that um, a good friend of mine from college had decided to leave uh, the Christian faith. He and his wife have been pastoring a church for the last five years and just posted, honestly posted a note on Facebook for friends and family to read of why I'm leaving the Christian faith. And this was a guy that you would have never, I just would have never thought that. He was passionate for the Lord, went to seminary, well-educated, just had a zeal and a love for God. And so it's been a a saddening week for me to kind of think about that and to think about how does someone get to a point where that's a, a reality for them, where they would feel like this is the best choice for me. Um, after having been in relationship with the Lord. And so that was kind of in the back of my mind as I was thinking through what I wanted to talk to you guys about today. I think it is important for us to, to not only understand what the Bible is saying, but to accurately understand it. Because the Bible has things to say, not just about who God is, but about who we are as children of God, about what to expect from the world around us, um, about how the world operates, how we are to operate in the world, how we are to be in relationship with God. And so it is, it's important to understand that. Um, There's a story of a lady, uh, she actually works at Focus on the Family, but she grew up, she was abused as a child, grew up kind of wrestling with homosexual tendencies. And when she was about 13 years old, she didn't grow up in a church, She, she had some friends who took her to church, her one time to go to church. And she opens the Bible, and she opens it up to this one verse in Exodus that talks about um, condoning or condemning homosexual behavior. And she reads this one verse in Scripture, and she says, I could never be in relationship with a God like that. And she, she never went back to church. For 20 years, she never set foot in a church again. Based off of one verse that she just happened to open her Bible up to at the age of 13 years old. Over time, about 20 years later, she met this couple, this wonderful Christian couple, who began to show her through their actions and through their love what God is like. And she began to be interested in, in Christianity. But in the back of her mind, she had this thought of, well, I read that verse in Scripture in the Bible, and that's who God is. I don't want to have anything to do with him. And so she finally brought this up to this couple, and they started talking to her, and they started walking her through the Bible and showing her the context of all these different passages, and then showing her, well, this is what God says about how he loves his children, and this is how he's faithful to them, and this is how he's forgiving. And through that, she began to get an accurate understanding of who God was. And she ended up giving her life to the Lord. But I think that story highlights how important... (laughs) It is that we understand God's word and that we don't just open up our Bible and look at one little verse and pull it out and say, well, this is what God says about this, or this is who God is to me, or this is how God feels about me, or this is what God thinks about this. That we have the understanding of how to read the Bible in context, to look at lots of different passages of scripture, and to be able to say, I have a full understanding 
of who God is. Sometimes I think we're a little bit like this, and I want to read this story. I read this in a book this week. It's called Four Blind Men and the Elephant. And sometimes I think this is how we are a little bit in approaching the Bible. Um, so, so listen to this. It says, There are four blind men who discover an elephant. Since the men have never encountered an elephant before, they grope about, seeking to under, understand and describe this new phenomenon. One grasps the trunk and concludes it is a snake. Another explores one of the elephant's legs and describes it as a tree. A third finds the elephant's tail and announces that it is a rope. And the fourth blind man, after discovering the elephant's side, concludes that it is, after all, a wall. Which one is right? Each in his blindness is describing the same thing, an elephant. Thus all are right, but none wholly so. And so I think this story highlights the importance, one, that we are on a lifelong journey of understanding and reading the Bible. But two, that we each are going to bring something to the mix, that we're going to bring an understanding, um, an insight, so it's important to communicate with each other. And that three, that while we will, like the Bible says, that, that we know in part and we see in part, but that one day we will get to a point where we know fully and we see fully. But it's a process, and it will take our whole lives. But it doesn't mean that the process is not valuable. And so today I want to talk about specifically how reading the Bible accurately can build our faith. I think that there are lots of ways in which, um, in which we, we think that there are things that build our faith. For example, miracles. We see a miracle. We say, that definitely builds my faith. Someone who, who gets healed. Maybe, maybe somebody that we've been praying for comes to know the Lord. We have an answer to, to prayer. That builds our faith. Um, maybe we're in a really tight situation, and God rescues us out of it. That can build our faith. But I don't know that we, I don't know if it's in our normal context sometimes to think, well, reading the Bible, that increases my faith. That builds my faith. And so today what I want to do is walk us through several passages, and I know Last week, Joe took you through one passage and kind of showed you how to, to, to read it in context and to read accurately. Today, I want to walk through several passages that are very common to Christian faith. You've probably heard all of these. But I want to do it in the context of how accurately understanding and reading these passages of Scripture can actually build our faith. Okay? Um, so the first, and there's the kind of three key ideas here, and I just chose these. Um, there's no, like, these are like the three key things to the Christian walk or something like that. These are three things that came to mind. You might easily have three other ways in which you could point to passages of Scripture and say, this passage of Scripture builds my faith. But I think we all want to be men and women of faith. We all want to grow in faith. We all want to believe um, and be able to step out in faith. And the word of God is pivotal for us being able to do that, understanding it and having a clear um, understanding of it. So the first one is about God. So we're going to unpack three ideas using passages of Scripture that will build our faith. The first one is that God is faithful. Now, there are numerous passages of Scripture that we could look at today to demonstrate that God is faithful. The Bible is full of references to the faithfulness of God. But I want to look at one in particular, and it's Philippians 1, 3 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. 
Philippians 1, 3 through 6. And chances are you have heard this passage before. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, now what does this have to do with faithfulness? Well, I want to set the context for you guys so that you understand. First of all, Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he's in jail. So he's been in jail. Uh, they, they think that he's, he's writing this after he's spent about 20 years traveling and doing ministry. So he's probably tired. <laughs> he's in jail. He's writing this to the Philippians. And the reason why he's writing the Philippians is because um, they're having difficulty getting along with each other. Who in here has ever had trouble getting along with someone else? Me, for sure. <laughs> it happens. If you read Philippians, a lot of it has to do with how we treat each other as believers. They were having conflicts. They were coming under persecution, and they were suffering involved. But they were, having, they were fighting the temptation to turn in on each other, to kind of gang up on each other and say, well, I don't like what that person did to me, or I don't believe, or I don't agree with that, what that person thinks about this. And so Paul is writing this to them to kind of try to circumvent that. He wants to cut it off before it becomes, becomes a problem. Now imagine if you were a Philippian. I don't know if that's what they called them, but that's what we're going to call them. Imagine if you were a Philippian, and, and you're a believer, and you're in this challenging place where nobody really likes Christians, and you maybe don't even like the person who comes and sits next to you at church. You might be discouraged. You might be wondering, okay, I'm committed to this, but I don't really see how it's going to happen. And Paul opens up with this, this, I'm so thankful for you, and I am also confident that God will complete what he has started in you. God will. And the definition of will there means, on God's part, not only a willingness, but also a certain intention. Paul has no question in his mind. God is going to complete what he has started. He will finish it. I would imagine that would be fairly encouraging (laughs) to the Philippian church. In the midst of this messiness, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of uncertainty, that that Paul is saying, look, I know that you may not see the end of the tunnel right now, but I am confident of this. God will finish it. He will finish the good work that he has started. I think that this connects with us in a variety of ways. I mean, I know that the Bible is written to, I think Joe, I'm assuming Joe talked about this, that how the Bible is written to, we can't, we can't read it as if it's written directly to us because these are letters that were written to people thousands of years ago, but God speaks to us through it, and that the circumstances that they found themselves in aren't so different from our own sometimes. And so how does this help us? How does this, how does this passage strengthen our faith? How does it remind us that God is faithful? Well, sometimes when I have somebody in my office who's in a really hard place and they're really discouraged, I pull out this passage and I say, tell me what it says. Let's read it together and you tell me what it says. I say, does it say God will, 
God will finish what he started if you do it perfectly? I say, does it, does it say that, that you'll be able to accomplish it when your own striving or your own human effort? No. It says that God will, not me. God will, that he is faithful. So that when we encounter circumstances in our lives that seem beyond us, we can anchor ourselves in and connect ourselves into something that isn't, it's so much bigger than us. It's about who God is and that it's God's word to us that he will finish what he starts. And that increases our faith. I think it builds our faith that when we encounter something that we don't see the answer to clearly, we can say, okay, I don't know exactly how this is going to work out. I don't see a resolution to this situation. But the Bible tells me that God is faithful to finish. So it's not dependent upon my own efforts or my doing things perfectly. It's dependent upon him. And I can trust that he's going to come through for me. Now, it'll be in his own timing and in his own way, but he will do it. Do you see how that passage of scripture could build our faith? Do you guys see it? You tracking with me? Okay. Um, there's a story of mine from, I was thinking about this when I was thinking about this particular passage from when I was a little kid and, um, I was about five years old. I think I was learning to ride a bike for the first time and I had just taken the training wheels off. I don't know how many of your guys' parents did this where your, your, <laughs> your parent would hold the back. They'll be like, I'm holding the back and they would run along behind you. And then without you knowing it, they would let go and you would you would be riding, and then all of a sudden you'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm riding the bike, and I can do it on my own. Did anybody else have that experience? Yeah. Well, that was my experience. That's what my dad was doing. He was kind of working with me on it. And uh, my mom decided to help me with it one day. And our driveway in Nashville, that's where I was born, kind of was on this gradual slope, and then there was Mr. Rummel was his name. He lived across the street, this old retired guy. He had a real steep ravine into his front yard. And so you can see where this story is going. So I, I was on my bike pedaling, you know, and my mom was like running behind me, but I was going too fast for her and she let go. And I realized that she let go and I wasn't ready for her to let go yet. And I freaked out and I just stopped pedaling. I just stopped pedaling. I stopped steering and I just went straight across the street, tumbled into this like 10 foot ravine, head over heels, all intertwined in the bike bruises from like here to here, just covered. And I, I decided after that, I was like, I'm never going to ride a bike again. I, I made this vow. I was like, I'm not going to do it. And I didn't. I mean, I, I do know how to ride a bike now. I'll get to that part. <laughs> but so five years pass, six years pass. I was 11 years old, never learned how to ride a bike. My parents tried, I think, to kind of push me back to it. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I would go to friends' houses, and they would, you know, they'd be like, oh, bring your bike over, and we're all going to ride. And because I was ashamed that I didn't know how, I would lie. I would say things like, I don't ride bikes with groups of people. Or, um, <laughs> or like, like one time I remember we were in my, at my friend's house, and she was like, she was like, oh, let's, let's ride. Let's ride bikes. I have an extra bike that you can, that you can borrow and I was like, I only ride bikes on Mondays. <laughs> like, really, and I would get real snotty about it because I was afraid of being found out that I didn't know how to ride a bike. 
And uh, not good. I, I was, I kind of lied a lot when I was little anyway. And so, and so finally when I was 11 years old, I woke up one morning at like five in the morning and I don't know how to describe it other than I honestly felt like God said to me (laughs) from a little kid's perspective, if you go out and try, I will help you learn how to ride a bike. And I, for whatever reason, I was like, I'm going to give it one more try. And so I went downstairs, and we still had, my parents kept my bike from when I was five. So it's purple. It's, like, for, like, a four-year-old. <laughs> and it has, like, like the purple ribbons dangling off of it. And uh, my knees were, like, up above the handlebars, you know, and I would sit on it. I was 11 years old. And so I would, I would do a few pedals and then put my foot down, do a few pedals and put my foot down. And out in the driveway, this is before any of my family is up. And before long, I was doing more, and I was going the length of the driveway. And I actually still remember to this day what it felt like when I took off and went across the street, across the the road and down this one street, going as fast as I could. And just this amazing feeling of having accomplished something that I had been afraid of for so many years. And I came back, and I ran inside, and I ran upstairs, and I woke my parents up, and I was like, I taught myself how to ride a bike, and I was so excited, and they were like, what? I mean, I, they had given up on me. They, they really had, did not think that I was ever going to learn how. And I thought of that story today, or this week when I was preparing this, because I thought that is, in a childlike way, an example of this verse, <laughs> that people had given up on me, that even I had given up on myself, that I was even ashamed of my lack of ability to get to a certain point. But God is faithful to finish the good work that he starts in us. And even though I don't know that this verse is talking about learning how to ride a bike, I think it's an example. It's a, it's a practical, physical example of, of what God can do. So one, God is faithful. The faith lesson that we take from that is that when we encounter challenges and obstacles and conflicts, we remind ourselves that God will complete the good work he started in us. Second passage I want to look at, and second idea I want to look at that I think can build our faith, is that God works through weakness and humility. And for this, I want to to look at 2 Corinthians um, chapter 12. But before we we read this section one through 10. Um, I want to kind of set the stage for this again. Context is important. Now, something that I do, and this is just like a little side, a side hint. I have a message Bible. And for any of you who don't have a message Bible, I recommend you get one. I don't, I don't read always straight from this. Um, but here's what I do is if I'm reading a passage of scripture and I'm thinking, and I'm in the NIV, and I'm jotting down kind of, okay, what are the key ideas, but I may be having a hard time grasping what it is. I'll figure out what I think is the best, most accurate understanding. Then I'll go to the Message Bible, and I'll read that passage, because the message puts it in our contemporary language, and so sometimes it's easier to understand the big idea. Does that make sense? So I'll read it, and I'll say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm grabbing hold of the big idea. But I want to set the stage for you guys. The Corinthian church is probably the most frustrating church in the New Testament that you will read about. They were kind of the church that was like, we kind of want what we want, how we want it, when we want it type church. They struggled with sexual stuff. They were known for having issues in the church with drinking. 
Um, they, they were planted in a very pagan, um, very secular culture. And so this is probably one of the biggest challenges that Paul faced. And I think it's important that you know, before I explain the context of this particular passage, that, that Paul came to Corinth when he planted the church there. He stayed, they think, for about a year and a half and served as their pastor just to kind of get them on the, their feet off the ground. Taught him kind of the core basics, worked through issues. Then he left, and things just kind of fell apart. So there's two letters in the New Testament to the Corinthian church from Paul. And we're going to look at the second one. The second one specifically is, is that there's a, there's a group of people who have come in, and they've kind of wowed the Corinthian church, if you will, with their credentials. And, and the church just feels like, you know what, they're, they're way more qualified than Paul is. And we just like them better as leaders, and we're going to kind of follow what they have to say is essentially what happened. So Paul hears this, and if you can imagine, I mean, Paul's a human being. I think nowadays we kind of think, well, he's this hum- great man of God, and he, he was a great man of God, but he was still a human being. I would imagine this hurt his feelings <laughs> to know that this church that he had invested so much time in and effort in and care toward is kind of saying, look, we just don't think that you really have it together or you're all that special, and we'd rather listen to what these guys have to say instead. So I want to read the chapter that comes before this particular chapter because I think it's interesting. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but in it, Paul is kind of listing out his qualifications. He's kind of like, okay, if you want a list of recommendations or things that I've accomplished, I'm willing to give you that. If you're saying that these people kind of have it way more together than I do, I'm willing to give you that. So I want to read a portion of it, and I'm going to read it out of the message version. This is in chapter 11, about halfway through the chapter. He says, this is Paul saying to the Corinthians, I've worked much harder, been jailed more often, beaten up more times than I can count, and at death's door time after time. I've been flogged five times with the Jews' 39 lashes, beaten by Roman rods three times, pummeled with rocks once. I've been shipwrecked three times and immersed in the open sea for a night and a day. In hard traveling year in and year out, I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert, sun, and sea storm, and betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather. And that's not the half of it. When you throw in the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches, when someone gets to the end of his rope, I feel the desperation in my bones. When someone is duped into sin, an angry fire burns in my gut. Um, And so he's kind of building up to, like, look at, you say that these people have done all of these things. These are all the ways that I've suffered. These are kind of my list of qualifications that make me worthy to being listened to. And then that's the preceding chapter that goes into this passage. And I want to read this out of the NIV. It's 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. This, is, well, this will be familiar to you guys, I think. And actually, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Let's start in verse 5. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I read this chapter this week and kind of the context and the surrounding verses for it, I thought, you know, Paul is really throwing the Corinthians for a, a loop here. <laughs> he's really surprising them because he's kind of building up to this point of, okay, if you want, you want me to boast about all these things that I've done, I can, I can do that. And there's almost like a, a point where maybe, maybe what would seem natural would be for Paul to say, I had this thorn in my flesh and I overcame. <laughs> 